0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue this morning our study of First Thessalonians, and we are looking at These four verses in chapter 5 do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, we've been saying last week, this week, these five imperatives need to go together, all right? The first two negative imperatives of 19 and 20 set the boundaries for the last three positive imperatives. And these five exhortations concern the use and control of prophecy. That, these are all about prophecy. We can't separate them and make them say something they're not saying. He says, and we, were, we ended last week looking at this, do not despise prophecies. Now, in the context here, the primary way of quenching the Spirit is in the previous verse, to quench the Spirit by despising prophecies. And do not despise prophecy is a present active imperative with the negative particle which usually has the idea of stop an action that's already in progress. So the Thessalonians must have in some way been despising prophecies. Now, using the principle of audience relevance, does this command apply to us today? What would you say? Why or why not? Well, before you answer, let me share a few things here about audience relevance. This is a subject that I think is very important to the study of Scripture. Audience relevance is one of the rules of hermeneutics, and it requires that the interpreter ascertain the meaning of words of Scripture by what they meant to the original intended audience. That's a strange view, isn't it? What did it mean to the people to whom it was written? I mean, we just don't think about that, because most Christians would think it was written to me. Just arrived at my doorstep today like the newspaper. It's all about me, and you know, that's, that's where the problem comes. Well, let's look at the, let's back up to verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, some questions we need to ask here as far as audience relevance is, who is the audience of this verse? Thessalonians. Thessalonians, the first century Thessalonians, right? Not the... 21st century Thessalonians, but the 1st century Thessalonians. Okay, that's good, class. (laughs) Is this teaching specific to the Thessalonians only? I would say no. All right, next question. Is this teaching specific to the believers living in the transition period? And again, I would say no. Why? Because Proverbs teaches this same teaching, don't retaliate. Yeshua taught don't retaliate. Paul teaches this to the Romans and the Corinthians, and Peter taught this. So no, it's not specific to the transition period. All believers are to avoid vengeance. They're not to seek to repay evil for evil. In fact, we're to seek each other's highest good, even those that do us wrong. So this is the truth for all saints in every age. How about our verse? Who's the audience? Same people, of the audience for the other verse, right? <laughs> the Thessalonians in the first century. Okay. <laughs> Is this teaching specific to the Thessalonians only? I'd say no. I mean, does God want other churches, Cur- Corinth, Rome, does He want them not to despise prophecy? I would say He doesn't, right? Okay, then how about this? Is this teaching specific? to the believers living in the transition period. Yes. Yes. Why? Because, listen, if you were here last week, if you're paying attention, if you're awake, the gift of prophecy was temporary. Okay? So, if it's temporary to the transition period, then this verse doesn't really... We can't despise prophecy today because no one's prophesying today. Now, understanding that, let's continue our study that we started last week about prophets and prophecies. So he says, do not despise prophecies. First question we have to answer is, what is the definition of a prophet? Okay, let me tell you, the best definition you're going to find of a prophet, I think, is Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. He's talking to Moses. He's talking about Christ, but he's talking to Moses. From among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. So a prophet is essentially a spokesman for God. He's been chosen by God, and their task was speaking to the people on God's behalf. Peter put it this way, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spake from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, this prophecy is men speaking from God. Now, based on the questions that we got last week, there seems to be some confusion and some interest in this whole subject of women and prophecy. Now, whenever you bring in gender like this, it stirs things up. And it, this is especially important now because today we don't even have genders, okay? <laughs> so to speak. Well, they don't. People don't know what their genders are, but... The Bible recognizes gender and recognizes roles for gender. So let's talk about the prophetess for a minute. Because I want to clear this thing up about women prophets. Okay? A prophetess is no different than her male counterpart, the prophet. They're the voice of Yahweh. How many women prophetesses do we have in the Tanakh? Anybody got an idea? Two? Huh? Huh? We got two twos, maybe three. <laughs> maybe three? <laughs> Do I hear four? We're going four, four, four. <laughs> Anybody name any of them? Haldum. Yeah, no. I'm surprised you got Haldum. Okay, who? Okay, Miriam. You got three of them so far. There's a couple we're missing. Well, let's look at them. Okay, let's look at them. First of all, Miriam. Then Miriam the prophetess. Okay, so this is Moses' sister. All right? Moses and Aaron's sister Miriam, she's called a prophetess. That's it. No prophecies by her. We don't have a word from her from the Lord. It just says she was a prophet. So nothing's recorded in Scripture. All right. Then Deborah, a prophetess. The wife of Lapidoth. She's judging Israel at that time. So again, now we have Deborah, we have another prophet, but we have a prophecy from Deborah to Barak. It says, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoham, and Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. Now, this is the only prophecy we have of Deborah. That's it. So she does give this one prophecy, that's all we have. Then we have Huldah, which Sharon's the only one in the world who even knows that Huldah was a prophetess, okay? (laughs) So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahinakam and Akbar, and Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. All right, let's look at Huldah's prophecy. She said to them, thus says Yahweh. Okay, people, that's, this is a prophet. This is a prophetess. She is speaking for God. And, God. and then she says the God of Israel. Why does, what is that designation supposed to mean when we see that in the Scripture? He's called the God of Israel. Is he not the God of anybody else? really was not in that time period, okay? Remember, Genesis 1-11, through God got sick of mankind. He said, I'm done with you. He turned mankind over to other gods, and He created Israel, and He was Israel's God. And Israel was not to worship those other gods. He was Israel's God. So they're making the distinction here. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says Yahweh. Again, God is telling, He's speaking through her. Behold... I will bring disaster upon this place and upon the inhabitants and all the words of this book that the king Judah has read. Now, unlike Julie Green that we quoted from last week, who's the modern day saying she's a prophetess, all right, and you, you heard Julie say, I the Lord say this. She claims to be speaking for God. It's nonsense, okay? But she here, she is speaking for Yahweh, she is being the mouth of God. This is prophecy that we have from her. Alright, next we see the prophetess, and probably no one's familiar with her. Noadia. Anybody remember Noadia? She's mentioned one, one time in the prayers of Nehemiah. In his uh, imprecation, Nehemiah says this, Remember Tobiah and Samballot? Oh my God. According to these things they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Alright. Noahdja is a false prophet. False prophetess. Tobiah and Sanballat hired her to make Nehemiah afraid. There's no prophecy given by her. There's nothing recorded in Scripture. Alright, that's four so far. we got one more in Scripture. That's in Isaiah 8.3. And I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. And Yahweh said to me, "Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz." Repeat that twenty-five times. Okay. (laughs) All right. Now, who is this prophetess? Who is it? This is Isaiah's wife, and she's called a prophetess, which may mean she really wasn't even a prophetess, because titles at that time in the East were given to wives and daughters of the officials that reflected the dignity of their husbands or their fathers. So we really can't be sure that she actually was a prophetess. She just may be, this is Isaiah's the first lady, okay, and she's given the title prophetess. We don't have any prophecy by her. That's all we have, okay, just that she was a prophetess. All right, so we have four, possibly five women in the Tanakh called prophetess, we only have actual two prophecies from them. That's it. Just two brief prophecies. So throughout the Tanakh, we have two prophecies given by women, two different women. That's it. Alright. So what about the New Testament? Does it talk about women prophetess? Well, yeah, Let's Luke says this. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. This is all we know about Anna. That's it. No prophecy given by her, just it says she was a prophet. And then Peter, in Acts 2, quotes Joel's prophecy on the day of Pentecost. It says, In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So, we're told that in the last days, in the transition period, women would prophesy. But we have no prophecies in the New Testament of women prophesying. It just says that they would do it. In Revelation 2.20, it says Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Okay, she, we're going to disclude her. All right, she, she wasn't speaking for God. We know that. All right, She was a false prophet. If she prophesied at all, we don't have any record of anything. But she wasn't a prophet of God. The only other prophetess we see in the Bible are... Anybody know? Philip's daughters. Very good. Acts 21, 8 and 9. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I think this is such an interesting text here. Philip has four virgin daughters, uh, ESV says they're unmarried. Who prophesied. That's all it says. We have no record of any prophecies that any of them gave. And what's really interesting in this context is that these daughters of Philip didn't say anything to Paul about his upcoming trip to Jerusalem and about the bondage that he was going to come under, but a prophet named Agabus comes down from Judah to give this prophecy. Acts 21.10 While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. Alright, so they entered the house of Philip. They're they're staying in Philip's house. And he's got his daughters there in the house with these four daughters. And they don't say anything about this trip to Jerusalem. Agabus has to come from Jerusalem to give Paul this prophecy. Now, Jerusalem is here. Okay? Agabus travels to Caesarea, which is here, about a 75-mile trip. He didn't jump in his car, okay? He's riding a donkey, he's riding a horse, he's walking. He went 75 miles to give a prophecy to Paul when there were four prophetesses right there in the same house with him. What's going on here? The text goes on to say, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Agabus came to took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Instead of saying, Thus says the Lord, he's saying, Thus says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's God. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. This is, Thus says Yahweh. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus takes Paul's belt, which was probably just a long piece of cloth they'd wrap around themselves several times. And and in the image of the Old Covenant prophets, he would act out this prophecy, and he binds his own hands and feet to give this vivid picture of what the Gentiles are going to do to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. Now, this prediction of Agabus was fulfilled In Acts 21, 33, Paul is now at Jerusalem. It says, Then the tribune came up to arrest him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who it was and what he had done. So, why didn't Philip's daughters give Paul this prophecy? Why did a man have to travel 75 miles to give a prophecy when you got four prophets in the house. <laughs> we may have an answer in verses 12 to 14. Okay, let's look at these. When we heard this, this is the prophecy that Agabus just gave. When we heard this prophecy, we and the people there urged him, do not go up to Jerusalem. Listen, God says this is what's going to happen, so don't go, okay? Don't go. And Paul answered, why are you, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? Paul says, I'm ready not to be in prison, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Yeshua. And since he would not be persuaded, we couldn't talk him out of it, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. It's going to be, okay? Now, here's what I want you to notice that Luke says, and I'm just asking you to think about this, okay? We and the people there urged him. Who were these people at Philip's house? And it doesn't say Philip and his daughters urged him. Who were these people? Who is at Philip's house that other people that are involved urging him not to go to Jerusalem? I want to submit to your evaluation, your thought process here. Maybe the church, see, the church met in homes back then. Maybe Philip is using his home for church meetings. That would explain why the daughters didn't give the prophecy because women are not allowed to prophesy in the church. Okay? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 33-34. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, so many people pull this verse out. Women, don't talk in the church. Don't say hi. Don't welcome anybody. You step inside the building, you, you can't say a word. You're deaf-mutes until you leave. Okay? We have to take these verses in context. And the context here is talking about the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. The whole chapter deals with tongues and prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. End of the chapter. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So this chapter is bracketed by these verses. This chapter deals with the spiritual gifts, tongues, and prophecy. It is giving rules for the use of tongues and prophecy. And Paul adds another rule. He says women are not to speak in tongues or prophecy in the church. Now, some say that Paul wasn't forbidding women to prophesy, although that's what the text says, okay? Because he had already given them instructions in chapter 11 on how they were to prophesy. So let's go back to 11.5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, there's a lot of complex issues here in this thing, but he's probably talking about here about women prophesying outside the church meeting. Okay? And the reason they had to have their head covered is was a symbol of authority. It's telling people, I'm not out here as an independent agent under the authority of my husband. Obviously, women had a prophetic ministry in the transition period. We've already seen that. Philip had four daughters. Anna was a prophetess. Okay, in the Joel's prophecy, it talked about your sons and your daughters will prophesy, but we don't have any record of any of that. Paul gives three arguments in these verses for women being silent in the church. Again, in relation to tongues and prophecy. And I just think it's interesting that if women were quiet about the issue of tongues and prophecy today, you wouldn't hear anything about it. I mean, we went to a church when we were on vacation one time at Pentecostal church, and woo, I'll tell you, these women were popping up and giving all kinds of prophecies. I wanted so desperately to stand up and say, let the women keep silent in the churches. But my wife was with me, so I, <laughs> I behaved myself. But I could quote Scripture and You know, what would they do? They'd throw me out, probably. But Well, the first argument Paul gives is because of the custom of the churches. We see this in the last phrase of verse 33. He says, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, in general, translators consider verse 33b here to be the introductory part of the first sentence of 34. Now, the Greek manuscripts had no punctuation, and so the context needs to determine you know, how these verses go. They didn't have chapter and verses back then. It was just all written out. So his appeal is that in all the churches, women are to keep silent. They're not permitted to speak in tongues or prophecy. This is customary, he says, in the Christian church. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that the principle of women not speaking in the church services was not local. It wasn't geographical. It wasn't cultural. It's universal. Because it's customary in the Christian church, it suggests that women participating publicly in the church meeting should somehow be inconsistent with what Christianity is. So Paul calls upon them to conform to the custom of the Christian church. His second reason is his own apostolic authority. He says they are not permitted to speak. That's what Paul is saying. He's speaking as an apostle Notice what he says in verse 37. He says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Okay? Paul's giving commands, not suggestions, not opinions. He's giving commands. This is not Paul's personal preference. This is not Paul's bias. When Paul spoke for God, his views weren't tainted by his own opinion. He gave the word of God. He's not teaching the submission of women in church because of his Jewish background. He just thinks, you know, not because he's some kind of chauvinist. He taught the truth because he had been taught it by the Lord. He says, they are not permitted to speak. And now, since the apostles were infallible mouthpieces for God, for the Holy Spirit, to disobey them in any manner of faith and practice is to refuse to obey God. Then his third argument comes at the end of verse 34, and it's a scriptural argument. He says, as the law also says. Now that's interesting because he reaches back into the Tanakh to support his argument. Where does the law say women are to keep quiet as far as prayer and prophecy? Well, a lot of debate there, but I think he's probably going back to Genesis 2 and dealing with the creation order here. Adam was created first, and then Eve. Eve was created as Adam's helper. And Paul consistently appeals to the creation account of Genesis 2 throughout this epistle. So, all through the Tanakh, the position of women was to be in subordination to the man when it came to leadership in the things of God, and in the worship of the tabernacle. So, for these three reasons, Paul says in the church meeting... The women should be quiet as far as speaking in tongues or prophesying. People, I'm surmising here, but you know why would you have four prophetesses in a house who don't tell you this? But Agabus has to make a 75 mile trip to straight to tell you what's going on. It just it's hard to wrap your head around. I think. <clears throat> well, to support the fact that women weren't to lead in the church. Because like I said today, this is a huge issue, okay? Just a huge issue. Most people throw out what the Bible says because, hey, we're in a time when, like I said, genders don't even matter anymore, so it doesn't matter if women can do anything a man can do, all right? <clears throat> well, when you look at the Bible as a whole, for example, in the Tanakh, there are no women kings listed in the kings of Israel or Judah, none. There's no woman priests in the Tanakh. There are no women who wrote a book or a portion of a book in the Tanakh. And there are no women who had an ongoing prophetic ministry. We saw two women, each gave one prophecy, that's all we have. The same is true when we come to the New Testament. There's no women elders. There's no women evangelists. None of them wrote any of the New Testament books. There are no sermons or teaching given by women in the New Testament. And all of Yeshua's twelve disciples are men. Now, let me make this real clear. (laughs) <laughs> clear, <laughs> Queer. <laughs> I don't want to make it queer. I want to make it clear. <laughs> Men and women share equally in spiritual life, a quality of life. When a woman comes to Christ, she has everything that a man has in Christ. okay? Paul says there are no male or female in Christ. There's an equality there, but we have different roles. You might ask why? Ask God. Okay? Why are these limitations placed on women? Well, Paul gives us two reasons why there is distinction in the roles. Number one is because of the priority of man in creation. All right? He says this in 1 Timothy 2 12 and 13. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, rather, she is to remain quiet. And people, someone in the congregation said, Why, Paul? And he says, For Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's his reason. The order of creation was God's way of telling all his creation that man was to be in the role of headship with the responsibility of that headship. The second reason is given in verse 14. The women had the priority in the transgression. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The woman was the one who was deceived in the garden. She was the first one to sin. She took the lead in sin and usurped the authority of her husband. She wasn't following her husband. She was leading. And she sinned, and he followed her. They stepped out of the place of creation. Now, when you talk about women's roles, so many people today say, oh, that was cultural. That has nothing to do with it. Does Timothy, does Paul sound like he's making this cultural here? He's going back to creation. He goes, it's because Adam was first formed and because the woman was deceived. The priority of man in creation and the priority of women in the transgression. What the woman did was an act of rebellion against God's order. And Paul says this is an illustration and it always should be kept in mind. The position of the man and the woman by creation is the headship of man, Sorry, ladies, that's just how it is. Okay, and it's not a problem in a a biblical household. This is God's not saying men, you're supposed to be a caveman and beat your women, and you know, they have to follow you and submit to you. That's not it at all. You know, in a loving relationship, the man is called to love, the woman is called to submit. And when they do that, Paul says they become an illustration of Christ and his church. That's pretty amazing. That's what a loving household, a loving husband and wife, Pictures for the world. This is how Christ loves the church. This is how the church submits to Christ. <clears throat> now, when we ended last week, we are talking about the sign gifts. Prophecy. And how prophecy was only for the last days. We looked at the book of Daniel, and we saw that Daniel's vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, which would bring an end to all prophecy. Yeshua said the same thing in Luke twenty-one, twenty-two. Yeshua said, these are the days of vengeance, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem to fulfill all that is written. All prophecy was fulfilled by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that prophecy will end when the perfect comes. Paul also says in Ephesians 4 that when the body is completely matured, we no longer need spiritual gifts. And we know that the body was matured when the Lord returned because he didn't return until it was mature, and he moved into his new house, all right? We have clearly demonstrated, I think, that when the last days ended, so did the gifts. Look at Acts 2. This is talking about Pentecost. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's quoting Joel. "...in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy." Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, what a lot of people don't get here is these verses, 16 through 18, he's quoting Joel and he's explaining what's happening at Pentecost. But then in verse 19 through 20, part of the same prophecy, he jumps ahead 40 years. To the end of the transition period and the judgment and the day of the Lord. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. This is not Pentecost, people. This is Holocaust. Okay? The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. Great and magnificent day. Now, we've been talking about the day of the Lord. day of the Lord is a time of judgment. And in the New Testament is always a time of judgment on Jerusalem. So this whole prophecy prophecy is predicting what we call the Christ event. The beginning of His ministry to the end of the 40-year transition period. The Christ event. It's called the transition period. It's called the last days. It's called the second exodus. It encompasses from the cross, Pentecost, resurrection, judgment, parousia. So Joel's prophecy covers from Pentecost to the day of the Lord. A 40-year period that was equal to a generation. It was, in fact, the second exodus. Now, the last days, if you say, began around Pentecost and ended in AD 70. And the gifts of the Spirit were to continue until the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. They were to go through that transition period. The gifts were for the transition period. Okay, just like the manna in the first exodus was for the exodus period. When they got in the land, the manna stopped. Okay? When the church received her inheritance of the new heavens and new earth, the gifts stopped. Now, if the Lord has not yet come, as most of the church believes, and the last days are still in progress, as most of the church believes, we're still in the last days, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. What are they the last day of, if they last 2,000 years? I mean, it's just, that's a long last days. Okay? So if the Lord hasn't returned, if the day of the Lord hasn't come, then the revelatory gifts of the Spirit should still be around. If the day of the Lord's still future, the gift should still be here. But the last days ended with the day of the Lord in 8070, then the gift of prophecy ceased as well. To further emphasize this, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1 5 through 8. "...in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift." All right, Corinthians, first century Corinthians, you guys are not lacking anything. You got the gifts, you got all the gifts. Now watch what he says next. "...as you wait for the revealing of our Lord, the Christ, who will sustain you to the end, the end of what? The end of the transition period, the end of the old covenant, the end of the age guiltless in the day of our Lord Yeshua the Christ. So are the revelation, the end in the day of the Lord still future? Well, most of the church thinks so. If so, then all the gifts of the spirit must still be available today because it says they would not come short of any of them waiting for the Lord to return. Now let's remember the principle of audience relevance. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians in the first century. They we were eagerly waiting for the second coming of Yeshua. When the Lord returned in 8070, the last days ended, and so did the gifts. Now, believing that Christ has not yet returned makes holding the position that some of the gifts have ceased indefensible. Believing the last days ended in 8070 and that the destruction of Jerusalem was God's revelation of Yeshua the Christ completely removes the dilemma and the inconsistency. Preterists are not consistent unless they believe the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased, and the futurists are not consistent unless they believe that all the gifts are still available. You can't say that the perfect has not yet come, but the prophecy has ceased. That's inconsistent. And if the gifts are still here, where are they? Who's seeing them? I want someone with the gift of healing. That's the only thing I really care about. Let's go to the hospital. Clear it. I mean, Peter's shadow falling on people healed them. Okay? But these people claim to have these gifts in a nebulous. You know, you heal people of low back pain and sinus headache. Okay, in Tidewater, that's everybody. You've got sinus headache. Okay, so you can heal these things. But they're not growing limbs back. They're not doing any of this stuff. But people are so desperate that they follow these people. All right, let's look at some other scripture from the Tanakh. It shows that prophecy was to cease. Isaiah 51, 1-3. through three, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham. Now this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but since it's there, I've got to throw this in. Okay, The group who call themselves covenant creationists, they say Israel goes back to Adam. That's not what this text says. That's not what Yahweh says. He says, look to the rock from which you are hewn. Let's go back to Adam. No, to the quarry from which you... Look to Abraham and Sarah. Because that's where Israel began. Alright, Israel did not begin with Adam. God dispersed all... We all go back to Adam, but God dispersed of those people because they wouldn't follow him. He started over with the new people, Israel. Okay, that's extra. And your, and Sarah, whom bore you? For he was but one when I called him. That's right, just Abraham. God called Abraham, just one. That I might bless him and multiply him for Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of the song. Eden, people, is God's dwelling place. That's his temple. That's his home. And Isaiah is calling Israel to remember the Abrahamic promise. The Abrahamic promise involved the redemption of Israel. Now, when I say that, you have to understand it's the redemption of true Israel, spiritual Israel. There was a physical Israel. Okay, They turned away from God. God called a remnant out of that who was true Israel, and Christ is the true Israel. All who are in Christ are Israel. Because the Abrahamic promise was made to Abraham and his seed, singular, which is Yeshua. So those promises made to Yeshua, all us who trust in Yeshua are partakers of the Abrahamic promise, and we are the Israel of God. Now, who is Zion? Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is the bride of Christ. Zion is the true Israel of God. And we see that in Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come. He's talking to the church. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to the innumerable angels and festival gathering. So that's what Zion is. It's the dwelling place of God. It's the new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 52, 7 it says, how beautiful on the mountains, Are the feet of the one who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, we know this is a messianic prophecy, and we know that because Paul quotes it in Romans 10, 15. Now, watch the next verse. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Now, Isaiah said that Israel would be face-to-face with Yahweh in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise of redeeming Israel. So Israel was to see eye-to-eye when Yahweh restored her. When was the Lord going to restore Israel? It was at the consummation of the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9, which culminated, culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So Paul says the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit would cease when Israel would see face-to-face. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I don't know if men could really say that. (laughs) Seems like we get stuck around year 12. (laughs) For I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, Paul says, now in the transition period I see dimly, then at the coming I'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Therefore the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased at the consummation of the 70 weeks. We can't divorce Israel's promise of seeing eye to eye, from 1 Corinthians 13. And therefore, we need to acknowledge the first century miraculous gifts have ceased. Look at Isaiah 62, 10-12. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear the stones. Lift up a signet over the people. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense Before him, and he shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now this is the same theme of Isaiah 52, 8, they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. But now look at verse 11 here, it says, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation comes. His reward is with them. Where is that in the New Testament? Anybody know? Yeshua quotes this in a, in, a, in a section of verses I know you're familiar with. Matthew 16, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. His reward is with them. Salvation is coming. Whose salvation was Yeshua to be? He was Israel's salvation. He's the promised redeemer of Isaiah 62-11. Now, I don't think anyone would argue with that. But in Matthew 16-27, Yeshua is quoting from Isaiah 62.11. 11 Now, Isaiah 52.8 8 and 62.11 11 both speak of the same time and event, the redemption of Israel at the coming of the Lord. And Yeshua, quoting Isaiah 62.11, 11 said that His coming for the salvation of Israel when Israel would see face to face. And he said, There are some standing here, some of the disciples he's talking to, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the Lord is saying that his coming would be in the lifetime of his first century disciples. So when Israel saw face to face, the miraculous would cease. And this was to happen in the lifetime of the first century disciples. And it did when Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, if Matthew 16, 27, 28 was fulfilled at Pentecost, as some say, then the miraculous gifts ended at Pentecost when they began. Okay, we're not even going to think about that too long. All right. So what have we seen? Daniel said prophecy would end at the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in 8070. Paul said the prophecy would cease when the perfect comes. The perfect referred to the second coming of Christ that took place in AD 70, bringing in the new heavens and new earth where we see Him face to face. So the coming in of our Lord for His people brought them to full maturity and closed the canon of Scripture, which means the miraculous gifts of the Spirit came to an end. The gifts were for the period of the last days. When the last days ended, so did the gifts. So important. So when these people today are running around prophesying, don't worry about it. You don't need to know what they're saying. We have the word of God here, complete, finalized. We don't have a bunch of extra words of God being said everywhere else, okay, that often contradict each other. All right, so hopefully we've covered the issue of prophecy. So let's keep going on in our text. He says, after he says, despite the prophecy, he says, test everything. Now, the adversative but here is the Greek day. It signals that these imperatives are linked to the preceding exhortations. The everything that they are to put to the test are the prophecies that they hear. The prophecies that some within the church were rejecting. So he's saying, listen, don't despise prophecy. Test it. The word test here is dakimazo. It's a technical word for testing money to determine whether it's counterfeit. It means to put to the test or to test the value or quality of something and then to approve after testing. So what are they to be testing? Well, in the context, this refers to the prophecy. The Lord had warned His disciples that false prophets were going to arise. All right? He says this in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets. This is why He tells them, test it. Don't just, someone says, thus says the Lord, don't buy it. Test them. Because you got to beware of false prophets. They're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. People, that is not a wolf with the sheepskin over his head, all right? <laughs> the prophet's clothing was a sheepskin, all right? It was a sheepskin mantle. That was the prophet of the mantle. That distinguished him. Just like the, the, the Greek philosophers wore that. That idea with a wolf with a sheepskin, that comes from Esau's fable. That doesn't come from the Bible, okay? You'll recognize them by their fruits, hmm, okay? Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, there are those who were not prophets of God, but they're wearing the prophet's clothing, and they're false prophets. Now, he says you're going to know them by their fruits. Contrary to popular opinion, this has nothing to do with their how they act. That's so important you get this here, okay? You're going to know them by their fruits. And everybody today, they're fruit inspectors. They're running around inspecting everybody for fruit, okay? And they're, look, Holly, oh, you smoked. Oh, you're not. That's bad fruit. You're going to hell, you know? <laughs> I mean, the stupidest things that aren't even biblical. But they're examining everybody, what these people do. That's not what he's talking about. This doesn't mean they're to be tested by their works. No, notice what Yeshua says about fruit a little later in the same gospel in Matthew 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit good. For the tree is known by its fruit. That makes sense, right? You walk up to a tree and there's oranges. What kind of tree is that? Okay, it's an orange tree, right. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the Day of Judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. The text proves that their fruits are what they are saying. In other words, it's not what they do, it's what they say. Their behavior does not set them apart from the sheep. Their message does. Listen, the Mormons could appear to outlive most Christians in the sense of righteousness. They don't even drink coffee. I don't know what's bad about coffee, but the, you know, they view coffee as evil, so they stay away from it. But their message is damning. It's not about lifestyle. This is not what he's talking about in this text. Peter also warns about false prophets. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in heresies, denying the master who bought them, holding upon themselves swift destruction. Now, I keep getting ahead of myself here. Right, if we look at 1 John, John uses the same verb to inform the readers about the content of prophetic speech, about test here. He says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, the world test here, documazo. uh Bauer's lexicon says, to make a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness, to put to the test, to examine. How were they to test the spirits? Well, they were to test everything by the teaching of the Tanakh. They didn't have a New Testament at that time. By the teaching of the Tanakh and the apostolic circle, what the apostles were teaching. He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And it's because these false prophets that prophecy had to be tested. What does John give his readers as the test? How do they tell a false prophet? The test he gives them is a doctrinal test. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Again, what he confesses, what he is saying. And everyone that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the Spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Excuse me. So John didn't say that we can tell a false prophet by what they do. They smoke cigarettes and they drink beer. He said we can identify them by their message. This was the acid test of prophets under the Old and New Covenant. What they said, Paul is telling the Thessalonians to be like their neighbors, the Bereans, who set them a good example in this respect. He says, now these Jews were more noble than those at Thessalonica. Now we're studying the epistle to the Thessalonians, and he said that. Brians are better than the Thessalonians, all right? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scripture daily to see if these things were so. Believers, we don't have prophets today. But if we're going to apply these verses to, to us today, I think this is a call to examine all preaching and all teaching in light of the Scripture. And just because somebody opens the Bible and preaches from, it doesn't mean their message is biblical, okay? There's far too much scripture twisting and abuse of the Bible that goes on today. There's a lot of false teaching out there from the New Age movement to the Masons, the Mormons, often under the umbrella of Chrysostom. They'll name the name of Jesus or they'll say something and you're like, oh, they must be all right. Listen, within the church, there's a great variety of opinions. Now, I'm sure you're all aware of that. we got liberals who deny the supernatural and the miracles. Now, no, we don't take all the miraculous out of the Bible and make God just, you know, nothing really. There are ecumenists who want us to join hands and sing kumbaya with people who deny the deity of Christ, with people who deny the fundamentals of the faith. There's charismatics who want to add to the Bible new revelations. We've got this new prophecy over here. Who's right? How do we know? How do you go about establishing who's right and who's wrong? We do it by examining everything in light of the Scripture. Because the Scripture is infallible. It is inerrant. It is a guide to determining truth and error. Now, of course, we have to interpret Scripture carefully, and it's in context, comparing Scripture with Scripture, on the assumption that God doesn't contradict Himself. We need to be Bereans. And people, this is why I constantly say to you, don't believe what I say. That's not, you're not here to accept or reject. You're here to take the information and study it and find out if these things are so. That's who you're calling. And that's what you would be calling anything you're hearing. You're evaluating it in light of the Scripture you know. You're examining it to see, is it true? Is it right? So Paul says, test everything, and then hold fast to what's good. That makes sense, right? This is another present active imperative. It's a command. The good they should hold firmly to is the prophecies that they have tested and found to be genuine. It relates to the things examined. And then he says this abstain from every form of evil. (coughs) This is one of those verses that people just jerk out of the context. You know, it's like your fortune cookie. Just a little verse on one piece of paper. Abstain from every form of evil. And the King James has done a really good job of messing this up. And the King James says this, Abstain from every appearance of evil. This suggests the idea that we should avoid what even appears to be evil, though it may not in reality be evil. So how far do you... This is secondary, third separation. You keep getting... That appears evil. Okay? And it's just, it can get to be crazy, okay? Any appearance of evil, you have to stay away from. Now, the term form here is the Greek word ados, and it literally means that which is seen, the external appearance. appearance. So this command can't be torn from its context where true and false prophecy are in view. That's what he's talking about. Consequently... This verse is not primarily warning people to abstain from any kind of sinful association with the outside world. I mean, the Scripture does speak of that in other places. But it's telling us to separate from false prophets and to reject their erroneous message. After testing the prophecy, if it's false, it is evil, and you're to abstain from it. Now, remember what we said earlier. These five exhortations concern the use and control of prophecy within the church. Test everything. That's all prophecies. Hold to the good, that which derives from true prophecy. Avoid every kind of evil prophecy. This is all about prophecy and how the transitioned saints were to respond to it. Now, again, this applies to those in the transition as far as prophecy goes. But I think if we could make application today, it would be how we respond to the teaching of the Bible. We got people teaching everywhere. Uh, you, if you got an internet connection, you get on there and you can teach the Bible. You know, people on Facebook giving their opinion. Pe- you know, people everywhere. We're just surrounded by it, and believers. were are called to test everything that we hear in light of the Scripture. And everybody who's teaching is using the Bible. They don't. You know, they have to have some kind of support for what they're saying, or you know, people would catch it right away. But. And I've warned you this before, but I don't think I can warn you enough because the whole idea of their fruits, what they are saying, doctrine is important. And there are many false teachers out there under the banner, under the umbrella of preterism. And just because somebody says they believe the Lord returned in AD 70 does not make them our brother or sister in Christ. does not mean we have instant fellowship with them. Some of these people are universalists. Some of these people are just every form of doctrine you can imagine is under that umbrella. And some things are much more important than eschatology, like soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. What do they believe about salvation? Their doctrine of Christ, Christology. What do they believe about Christ? Who was He? We need to test everything. And people, this is one of the reasons that I encourage you constantly to read through your Bible. Every year. Anyone who's a believer should read through their Bible once a year. That's Christianity 101. That's basic. Yet most Christians have never even read the whole Bible. Why should we read it? Because how are we going to know false doctrine if we don't know the truth? And then when you're familiar with the truth, guess what? You hear false doctrine and go, wait, I think John said something about that over here. And you run to it. Okay? Because you're familiar with the Scripture. You know what it says. The only way you'll get familiar is spending time in it. And now happens to be a good time to be thinking about next year. We're only a couple of weeks away. So you want to be thinking, what plan am I going to use next year to go through the Bible? Okay, That's not an option. This is, this is You've got to do it. Okay, You've got to read through your Bible. Then you also want to be thinking about, what translation do I want to use? I suggest use a different translation each year. You know, learn, you know, you'll pick up little things differently here and there. But people, there's nothing as important for us as believers to be familiar with the Word of God. And it's so foolish that we rant and rave about inspiration and then don't touch it. Oh, yeah, it's the Word of God. It's the Word of living God. I'm not going to read it at all. I'm not going to look at it, but I believe it's God's Word. That's foolish. We need to get in the Word of God. So, okay, be thinking about next year. Get your plan together. We've got a couple plans on our website. Pick out a good translation and get ready to be familiar because we are required to test everything. Everything we hear. Take it to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for Your Word. Thank You for its timeless truths, Lord. And I pray You'd help us to be discerning, Lord, of what we read and what we study, that we'd apply the rules of hermeneutics, Lord, to Your Word, distinguishing what applies to us, what doesn't apply to us. How do we apply it to us? Lord, thank You. May your word be important to us. May it be special to us. May it hold a high place in our lives, Lord, that we take time out of our day to spend time in it, listening to you, communing with you. Thank you for the privilege we have in this country to have so much at our disposal. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Kathy, will you bring me my phone? Take your time. I'm still praying on the delayed version, okay? <laughs> All right, believers, questions, comments? <laughs> oh. Doug says, who dresses you? You or your wife? ZZ Top may owe you royalties. (laughs) Solid sermon. (laughs) Thanks, Doug. (laughs) Uh, Kim says, we have a David from Australia in the chat today. Welcome from down under. Thanks. It's 3.30 in the morning? Wow, that's really impressive. Okay. Get up at 3.30 to listen, and you could listen to it later if you wanted, but thanks for being live. We, I appreciate that. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know who this is from. It says, Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Seven of what? He's one of the seven deacons chosen by the early church, Okay. In the context of 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty four, talking about women, not teaching, it says, as in the law. Are we still under the law? Is either all done away or it's not. <laughs> we're not under the law. Okay, that's not Paul's point. That's one of Paul's illustrations. He's saying the law teaches this. Okay? He's going back to the law. We're not under the law, but nine of the ten commands were reiterated in the New Testament. Nine of the ten. So that makes them, guess what, applicable to us today because the Lord brought them back in. We're not under the law. Is it okay to kill one another? We're not under the law. We're under the law of Christ, okay? And the law of Christ is laid out in the New Testament. Yes, he reached back to the Tanakh because, listen, that's that's what everything was based on. They didn't have a New Testament yet at that time. So if Adam was not deceived when he took a bite of the apple, you're assuming it was an apple. The Bible doesn't say anything about apples, okay? Does that mean he knew that he was sinning? Um, Yeah, his wife had sinned. He knew it was wrong and he went ahead and did it to be with his wife. He liked her. He said, I don't want to stick with this woman. I'll just jump in there with her and we'll just both commit sin together. (laughs) No, I think Adam's eyes were wide open, okay? (laughs) He, He knew he was doing. Okay, I'm not... I don't know who this is from. I'm not even sure what you're saying here. Um, wait a minute. Oh, wow. Okay, we're... People, try to keep your questions short because I don't want to just stand up here and, you know, read through a book. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Dispensationalism teaches only 69 weeks of Daniel's decree have occurred. Don't they teach 69 and a half weeks have occurred? they have placed a pause between the 69th week and the 70th. They they believe the 70th week still uh, yet to occur with a clear the 70th week still to occur and do it with a clear conscience. How is it that they misinterpret this? (laughs) I believe that they were consecutive weeks and ended with the destruction. If we understand things as they do then there could still be prophets. Well, yeah, I said, that's the whole thing. If you think you're living in the end times, which most of the church does, then there still should be gifts. The gifts were for the end times. That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. Isaiah's origin is not DNA specific as many believe but belief specific because Abraham's belief. Abraham believed and it was kind of him. Well, yeah, God just chose Abraham. Of all the people of the earth, He chose Abraham. He said, I'm taking you. I'm going to make a new people out of you. And that's what He did. And they became Israel and they became His people. In a nutshell, I can't do anything in a nutshell, okay? to find new heavens and new earth. New heavens and new earth is the new covenant. And the new people of the new covenant, okay? That's, the old covenant was, the old heavens and earth involved the, Israel and their covenant and their temple and their leadership. That was destroyed. This is the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So that's a quick summary. Uh, from Norm. He says, last week I mentioned illumination. You answered perfectly. The only proper illumination is that of the analogy of faith. Not what it says to me. Get familiar with the Old Testament. Yes, absolutely. That's the first three quarters of our Bible. If you don't know that and you jump into the New and you read things like the stars will fall from the sky, you're like, I know what stars are. I know what sky, they're going to fall down. If stars are what most people think they are, how could they fall to the earth? It would have <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of dumb, okay? So, but if we understand the language of the prophets in apocalyptic language, then we understand it's talking about the destruction of nations. It's apocalyptic language. Junior asks, not Bob Cruikshank Jr., okay? I, I make that distinction. People are getting, this is Junior, I believe, from Canada. Is it accurate to believe the last days began with John the Baptizer pointing to the Lamb of the world? Yeah, I don't I'm not specific on when exactly it started. started, you know, Christ said, all right, we could put it at Pentecost, you could put it at the cross, you could it's around that time period, all right. But we have the 40 year transition. We go from Pentecost to Holocaust, you got forty years, that was the time period. Yeah, the last days, I mean Hebrew says God is in the time past has spoke to us by the prophets, right? But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. So if the Son's on the scene, then I guess that would qualify as last days.